proof that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But let me define what the word Messiah basically means um, from a biblical perspective, okay? Messiah basically means the one who is anointed of God. The person who is anointed of God and sent into the world to rescue the nation of Israel. So there's a, a physical, political redemption uh, or salvation, deliverance of the nation of Israel. But the anointed one of God sent into the, into the world is also sent into the world to save the world, to save mankind uh, from his sins. And so a, a physical, political redemption of the nation of Israel, which is yet to occur, by the way, and uh, spiritual salvation for mankind. Okay? Um, now, throughout history, many have claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. The Jewish predictions about the Jewish Messiah fill the Old Testament. Uh, and it, 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 I don't want to go too in-depth about what types of prophecies we find about the Messiah. But let me just say this. Sometimes it just does say it the Lord, you know, the Lord himself is going to give you a sign, the virgin is going to be with a child and bear a son, you know, it just, it just straight out a prophecy, okay, and it just spells it out. Uh, but other times what God did uh, with the nation of Israel, and the rabbis have, have understood this, the, the Jewish religious uh, leaders and teachers of the Old Testament, that sometimes historical events in the nation of Israel would themselves be prophetic of the coming Messiah. Um, for instance, God delivering the Israel, the Israeli nation out of Egypt was itself prophetic that someday the Messiah would go to Egypt and then when King Herod would die, God would bring his, call his son out of Egypt and back to the land of Israel. Um, and so the nation of Israel itself was a type of the Messiah. The temple was a type of the Messiah. The temple and the portable temple, the tabernacle, and the furniture of the temple. And so they told us things about Jesus. Um, and we find the anointed king of Israel uh, would also be a foreshadowing of the Messiah. So sometimes David is going through an experience where um, he just feels that he's being torn apart and he just blurts out things and lo and behold uh, they were literally fulfilled by the Lord Jesus, the ultimate anointed one of God, the ultimate king of Israel, uh, the, the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who was slain. The feast days were prophetic. Um, you know, and the list goes on and on and on. Sometimes in Bible college I was taught hermeneutical principles, principles of how to interpret the Bible the proper way, the science of interpreting the Bible, and every once in a while I saw that the apostles would violate some of those principles, which tells me some of the principles that we're taught in Bible college aren't exactly right. We need to study the Bible. Gary and Eric are big on this. We need to study the Bible from more of a Jewish mindset, the way the Jews, ancient Jews, handled literature. That's the way we need to handle literature because God wrote the book to the Jews first. And that's why, uh, you know, 
the, the scriptures say over and over again that salvation came to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And, uh, uh, but whatever the case, throughout history many have claimed to be the fulfillment of these prophecies, uh, the Jewish Messiah. Some Jews today, to this day, believe the Messiah. In fact, most Jews to this day, you know, the only Jews that have accepted Jesus as the Messiah are called Messianic Jews. And uh, they're Jews by nationality, but they understand that the fulfillment of the Jewish religion is to accept Jesus as Savior, and so we call them Christians as well. Um, but uh, most Jews today believe that the Messiah has yet to come. They're still looking. By the way, there's a, a very big messianic expectation in the nation of Israel today, especially in Jerusalem, um, where there are many Jews who believe that the Messiah is about to come. Unfortunately, many of them are going to be, if, if we are in the generation that will see the second coming of Jesus Christ on planet Earth, um, many of them are going to be deceived into following the Antichrist who's going to come before uh, the Lord Jesus returns. Okay, um, But there's a very big messianic expectation, but, but many of these Jews think it's the first coming of the Christ, the Messiah. Uh, because they rejected uh, the first coming of Christ, okay? Uh, so many Jews believe that the Messiah has yet to come. Christians believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and he will return. He will come a second time. And that's when he will redeem and rescue the nation of Israel and reign on earth for a thousand years as he sits enthroned in the Holy of Holies in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, which is yet to be rebuilt, by the way. And so what I want to do is look at the Old Testament, and by the way, we can list hundreds of prophecies fulfilled by Christ. I want us to look at the Old Testament and just a few of those prophecies and, uh, and show that there is strong evidence, overwhelming evidence, uh, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He has the right to claim to be the Jewish Messiah. And uh, I think we can take, we can group together just three prophecies and prove that he is the only one in the history of mankind who meets the qualifications for the Jewish Messiah. Many men have come throughout the years claiming to be the Jewish Messiah, but you can just take three, three prophecies, three specific prophecies that I have in mind, and on those alone you can show that only Jesus qualifies to be the Jewish Messiah. Okay, so let's take a look at the scriptures. Um, oh, a little bit more an introduction here. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. Um, boy, I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it was done about 200 years before Christ walked the earth. Okay? And uh, there are some passages in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that disagree a little bit with passages in the Hebrew Old Testament that we still have today. Now the Hebrew Old Testament doesn't date back as far, even the Dead Sea Scrolls don't date back as far as uh, the Greek translation. But uh, most scholars believe the Hebrew is more accurate. Um, I don't contest that, but I do believe that there are 
several passages, Old Testament passages, about the Messiah that uh, appear to have been reinterpreted or retranslated after Jesus showed up on the scene uh, by rabbis. And in other words, what I'm getting at is uh, um, well, in Psalms, uh, King David says uh, about the, basically it's, it deals with the Messiah. Uh, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Um, you go to the Hebrew translation today, it's the same Hebrew letters, but they just group them a little differently uh, because there's no break between the Hebrew letters. There's no vowels in the, in the Hebrew letters uh, alphabet originally as the, the way it was spelled out. Um, but basically they translated something like, um, like a lion, my hands and my feet. And it really doesn't make sense. Now you have to choose between those two, but it doesn't make sense. But if you say they pierced my hands and my feet, it sounds too much like Jesus. And uh, this is a passage, uh, and by the way, when you look at how the rabbis before Christ interpreted the Old Testament, it seemed that most of their interpretations, whether they were reading the Septuagint or not, I don't know, but it seems in the Messianic passages, they were dealing with the translation, uh, the, the same message, the same words that we now have in the Septuagint. Uh, as of about 200 uh, B.C. Uh, but whatever the case, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 to 7, is a, the author quotes from Psalm 46 to 8, but he quotes from the Septuagint. And since the author of Hebrews is being guided by God to record God's word without error, guess what? I think he's quoting from the right translation here on this passage. And so I would disagree with the, the many Bible scholars that in this passage, when you go back to Psalm 40, uh, verses 6 to 8, it talks about God piercing uh, the Messiah's ear. Um, I, I think the Septuagint uh, reading is better because God inspired the author to record that. Um, by the way, Alfred Edersheim, uh, his work on, uh, on Jesus the Messiah... Um, he has an appendix that deals with how the ancient rabbis interpreted the messianic prophecies. And guess what? The ancient rabbis interpreted the messianic prophecies a lot along the lines that we evangelical Christians interpret them today and not like uh, the rabbis of today interpret them. Because again, if you, if, you don't want to, if you don't want to admit Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, you've got to try to explain it away. And that's, that's the present state of, uh, of Judaism today. Um, but look at Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 7, and he's quoting from Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. Uh, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, talking about the Messiah, sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And so basically what this passage says is that God really, now God has ordered the Jews, commanded the Jews to offer animal sacrifices, yet those animal sacrifices in themselves are not pleasing to God. 
So the Jews are performing these animal sacrifices, but that's not what's going to please God. What pleases God is that someday God will send the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate Lamb of God will take away the sins of the world. And then these animal sacrifices point to that. So the Jews, believing Jews, who perform the animal sacrifices with the expectancy that someday a man in the wilderness named John the Baptist would be able to point at another man and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, and so here in this passage, God says, Look, it's not animal sacrifices that... That, I des that God desires, but God has prepared, God the Father has prepared a body for me, for the Jewish Messiah. And then he repeats, God takes no pleasure in animal sacrifices, but behold, I have come. The ultimate sacrifice, God gave me a body, I became a man. Jesus always existed fully as God, but at a point in time he added a full human nature, a human body and spirit, became a man. And he came to do God's will, but he said, in the roll of the book, or in the scroll, it is written of me. And so the Jewish Messiah, even when you go back to Psalm 46, it's real clear. The Jewish Messiah, whoever he is, the Old Testament is written about him. We're going to find clues, uh, predictions, prophecies of the Jewish Messiah. So we have his credentials in the Old Testament. And then we can look at the Lord Jesus or anybody else who wants to apply for the job and we can see if he meets those qualifications. Um, and so it's real clear. It's written Jesus in Luke 24 after he had risen from the dead and two of his disciples didn't recognize him and he was walking with you. You don't expect to see a guy talking to you after he died just a few days earlier. And he's talking with them and he explained to them how the Old Testament spoke of him. When Jesus confronted the Pharisees, John chapter 5, John chapter 7, over and over again, he told them, you guys search the scriptures to try to find eternal life, but the scriptures speak of me, and in me you have life. And the only way you get eternal life from the Word of God, from the Bible, is the Bible identifies the Lord Jesus for us. And once we come to the true Jesus of the Bible for salvation, he alone is both willing and able to save mankind. And, uh, and so it says that he would be spoken about, that God would become a man, animal sacrifices would not save, but that the Messiah's coming would be foretold in writing, and we refer to those writings as the Old Testament uh, today. I want to make one other point before we look at some of these uh, messianic prophecies. Uh, the Old Testament is clear and the Pharisees rejected this, but the Old Testament is amply clear, okay, that the Messiah, whoever he is, when he comes, you better bow before him because the Messiah would be God incarnate. The Messiah would not be just, you know, like the Jehovah's Witnesses think, some angel who became a man. He wouldn't be like the Unitarian Universalists think, just another mere man. Um, he wouldn't be like who the, who the Mormons think he was, one of many gods. He would be the God become a man. And uh, uh, to put it in more precise theological uh, terminology, he is God 
the second person of the Trinity become a man. The first person of the Trinity and the third person of the Trinity did not become a man. There's only one God, but there's one God exists throughout all eternity as three equal persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Only the second person of the Trinity became a man and uh, provided salvation for mankind. Isaiah 7.14, he's referred to as Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a pretty, uh, pretty big name to live up to. God with us. Isaiah 9.6, this little child is going to be born, the Messiah, is referred to as the mighty God. Okay? Micah 5.2, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, it says, and then it tells us um, that his origins are basically, his, he is from the days of eternity. Uh, basically what it's saying is he's, he's an, he is an eternal person and uh, obviously only the tr three persons of the Trinity, the one true God, uh, can claim uh, to be an eternal person. In Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, he's, he is called the Lord our righteousness, literally Yahweh our righteousness. And believe me, the Jews didn't even mention the word Yahweh, let alone attribute it to somebody other than God. So Jeremiah says, He is Yahweh our righteousness. Uh, Zechariah 14, 1 to 5, talking about the second coming of Christ. He'll return with, his, with all His holy ones in power and glory that will defeat those who are invading Israel, the nations that are invading Israel. And uh, He is called there the Lord God, which literally would be Yahweh Elohim. Okay, very clearly referred to as God. This was one of the biggest stumbling blocks for the Jewish religious leaders who wanted to be number one in the religious community. They did not want to have to worship the Messiah. And by the way, why was Jesus crucified? The Sanhedrin found him guilty of what? Blasphemy because he being a man made himself out to be God. And uh, of course it's not blasphemy when you're just telling the truth. Okay. Uh, so the Messiah would be God. So let's take a look at some of the Messianic prophecies. I, for some reason I left out probably the most, well one of the most important because it's, it's the thing that gets the ball rolling, the first one. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. And don't worry, we're not going to look at all of these passages, okay? We're going to just take a few, but I've got them listed so you can do your own study for the next few weeks throughout and take a closer look at these. But in Genesis 3, you know, God created Adam and Eve in His image, perfect, without, without sin. They were morally pure. And then they, they sided with the, God's enemy, Lucifer, who spoke through the serpent, who led them astray, and mankind fell. And Adam and Eve, now they were sinners. They were, their sin separated them from God, from fellowship with God. And now their children are going to inherit their sinful nature and are also going to be separated from God. It would look like there's no hope for mankind. Okay? But God, in the midst of pronouncing judgment upon the sin of mankind, in Genesis 3.15, He gives a very little, tiny spark of light in the midst of this darkness. And the ancient Jewish rabbis interpret it the same way that we Christians interpret this today. 
and we understand from that this little spark of light, this little hope, uh, God made that spark bigger and bigger by making it clearer and clearer by identifying for us in the Old Testament who the Jewish Messiah would be. And uh, this is the only... Uh, Jesus is the answer for the world today, yesterday, tomorrow, forever. There is no answer, no hope for mankind other than the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus. And here's the first... Um, some refer to this as the uh, proto-evangelion, something along those lines. Basically what they're saying is the, the first giving of the gospel. Okay? C.S. Lewis went to town on this too as well. Uh, Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity, I will put hatred between you and the woman, between the serpent, Lucifer, and his followers, and the woman, and, and, and uh, those who are basically all believers who would trust in, in the Jewish Messiah. But I will put hatred between the serpent and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Uh, seems vague to us, but one of the things that stuck out in the minds of ancient Jewish rabbis as well as Christian scholars today is the fact that the word seed is almost always used. I believe every, every other time the word seed is used as far as somebody's seed, it's always the seed of the man, the seed of Abraham. And, and we, we can translate it offspring like the New International Version does, but it more literally means seed. So the NIV translators are taking a little bit too much liberty on that particular passage. Good, good translation, but they try to, to break things down, and sometimes in the process you go a little too far with it. Now what I'm saying is you will never see throughout the scriptures the seed of and then some lady other than here. It's always the seed of Abraham, because the seed comes from the man. Abraham married Sarah, but the seed came from the man. Um, she brought, you know, she had the egg, the seed fertilized the egg, and uh, they gave birth uh, to Isaac. Uh, but here you have the seed of the woman, which biologically speaking raises some questions. And so some scholars see in this passage as much of a prediction of the virgin birth that the Messiah would be born of a woman without the agency of a human man. Some see this uh, as almost as clear as Isaiah 7.14, which also predicts that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. But right from the, the start, the seed of the woman is referred to in singular, masculine, he, the seed of the woman is going to be a he, and he is going to basically demolish the head of the serpent. He is going to kill the serpent. He is going to bring about a death blow upon the serpent. But the serpent will do some damage to him, will bite it in his heel. So in some way the Messiah is going to suffer at the hands of the forces of evil, of Lucifer, and at the hands of evil. And obviously we know what that is now. And that's what's so much fun for us to read the Old Testament. We know the answers to the clues. You know, the, Paul talks about the Old Testament being the shadow. Jesus is the substance. And so now we can go back into the Old Testament and fill in the gaps. 
it was interesting how the ancient rabbis just from uh, the wisdom that God had given them had filled in many of the gaps themselves and they were expecting uh, many of the things that, that Jesus actually did himself um, so right from the start they were waiting for the Messiah and by the way it was all mankind waiting for the seed of the woman to come but as men began to invent their own false gods and worship false gods, eventually God takes this guy Abraham. And we don't have time to read it, but in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God tells Abraham, you know, hey, but basically the situation was every different nation had their own God. They were all worshiping false gods, okay? And so God said, well, I'm going to take one man, and from that one man I'm going to raise up a nation. And this one guy is so old and his wife's so old they can't have children. I'm going to miraculously give him a child, so they're going to have to be dependent on me right from the start. And so God tells Abraham that he's going to raise up from him God's own chosen nation, the nation of Israel. And that God's going to bless Abraham and his descendants and set them up as the greatest nation on earth. And those who bless Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, will be blessed of God. Those who curse them will be cursed. Uh, but he also promises there that through Abraham's seed, again that word seed, through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Okay? Uh, basically, the, the fulfillment of that is that Abraham's seed ultimately, the, you know, his seed was the nation of Israel, but ultimately... The ultimate seed of Abraham, Paul talks about in Galatians, is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus himself. And uh, the day is going to come, not only has the Lord Jesus provided salvation to all mankind, so those who accept his salvation are saved from him and blessed, but the day is going to come when the Lord Jesus is going to reign on earth and bring peace and righteousness to the planet Earth, something that, by the way, the UN is not going to be able to accomplish. They keep promising peace and righteousness and uh, all the time complimenting China on, on their population control uh, techniques which basically is forced abortion and uh, a lot of infanticide and euthanasia going on there as well um, the Lord, it was your bumper sticker on your card that says no Jesus, no peace that's what, you know, Bible's filled with passages slamming false prophets who say peace, peace when there is no peace Scriptures say, even to the end there will be war. The scriptures say, the Lord Jesus, He alone is the Prince of Peace. You don't want Jesus, you got Jesus gives us peace with God through salvation, but then He can give us peace on earth. He will give us peace on earth when He returns, and all the nations on earth will be blessed through the Messiah, the seed of Abraham. So what do we know about, first off, we know from Genesis 3.15, the Messiah has to be born, the Savior of mankind, the Messiah has to be born of woman. Okay? So he's going to be one of us. Uh, then we find out it's going to be on the seed of Abraham, so it's going to be Jewish. Okay? Abraham and his son uh, Isaac, from him came Jacob and Esau. Esau was rejected. Jacob had 12 sons and they made up the 12 tribes of Israel. Genesis 49, verse 10. Genesis 49. 
in verse 10 identifies the tribe. Which tribes? So then you got the whole nation of Israel, the Messiah could be any any man from the whole nation of Israel, but then all of a sudden it's narrowed down. No, he's going to be from one particular tribe. And that tribe is the tribe of Judah. Uh, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, and uh, this is uh, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. He's prophesying over his sons late in his life. And verse 10 it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Um, we, could, we could devote an entire message to this. It's, 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 it's complex to break it down and all, but I just want to give you uh, an overview here. Um, one thing is for the word Shiloh, literally it means to whom it belongs. Okay, so in this passage, uh, you, you would see the scepter. The scepter is the, the uh, basically the right to rule. Okay, so you have the right to rule shall not depart from Judah, from the tribe of Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. What? To whom the right to rule belongs. Okay. And then it says, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. That last line is talking about the millennium kingdom. Okay? When the Messiah reigns. But Shiloh, to whom it belongs, many ancient rabbis, because they saw the messianic significance of this passage, they began to use Shiloh as a synonym for the Messiah, as a word meaning the Messiah, one of the titles uh, of uh, the Messiah. Now what Josh McDowell points out is that you have two things that are being said here about uh, uh, hints about the Messiah. One is the, the removal of the scepter uh, from Judah. Okay. Now let me say this about the scepter not departing from Judah. What this passage is teaching is that once a king of Israel would come from Judah, the royal line would not go elsewhere. Okay? Once a king of Israel would come from the line of Judah. Now, Israel's earlier leaders were from different tribes. Moses was from Levi. Joshua was from Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim. Gideon was from Manasseh. Samson was from the tribe of Dan. Samuel was from the tribe of Ephraim, and King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. God rejected Saul, and then had Samuel the prophet anoint King David to be the next king of Israel. David was from the line of Judah, and uh, from then on, as far as God was concerned, the only true king of Israel, the right to rule, the scepter would remain with the tribe of Judah. And, uh, and so throughout, and, and there were times when, you know, the Jewish kings, the uh, uh, reigning from Judah, the, from the tribe of Judah, would get knocked off by, you know, Babylonians and Assyrians and that type of thing. Uh, but you, you always seem to find people like uh, uh, Daniel, uh, was the highest Jewish leader in captivity in Babylon, 
He was the highest Jewish leader, second or third in command in all of Babylon, and uh, and uh, he was uh, from the tribe of Judah. But whatever the case, as far as God's concerned, the scepter remains with the tribe of Judah throughout their history, starting with King David. Um, well, the removal of the scepter, the scepter from Judah, uh, Josh McDowell points this out, and many ancient Jewish rabbis, this is where he's getting the view from, they recognize that if you ever reached a point in time where you could no longer identify, you know, true which tribe you came from, then you would have no way of knowing if indeed the guy sitting on the throne really was from the tribe of Judah and the scepter will have been removed the right to rule will have departed from Judah basically when the temple was destroyed you know in Matthew's gospel you have the genealogies of Jesus okay the genealogy of Jesus and you also find it in Luke's gospel that's evidence that the temple was still standing because that's where the records were kept okay so you go to the temple and you can just lay it out and you can find Jesus' lineage, his uh, uh, biological lineage through Mary, his genealogy through Mary, or his legal lineage uh, through his uh, stepfather, Joseph. You can go to the temple and prove it. After, after 70 AD, you couldn't do that. Some guy walking around saying, I'm from the tribe of Judah, I should be your new king. There'd be no way to prove he was from Judah. So from David all the way to 70 AD, uh, at the point when the temple was destroyed, no longer could anyone have a legitimate claim to the throne. No longer could a legitimate claim to the throne of Israel be made. Okay? So, uh, Medal, echoing the ancient Jewish rabbis, is saying the removal of the scepter or identity of Judah, and that occurred in 70 AD, but then there's also the suppression of uh, judicial power with a lawgiver removed uh, from between his feet. Um, suppression of judicial power. Um, the ancient Jewish rabbis, they understood that to be 11 AD. When uh, the Roman Empire took away from the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, 70 elders, they took away from the Sanhedrin, which is made up of rabbis and priests, uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, when they took away from the Sanhedrin the authority to exercise capital punishment, the authority to send somebody to the death penalty, okay? At that point, the Jews recognized um, they are taking away um, uh, our right to rule. They're taking away uh, our right to enforce the laws. And we are the lawgiver to our people. That's been taken from us. We can only judge them in, 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 in uh, less for lesser crimes. Uh, let me give you a quote from uh, Rabbi Rachman. And Josh McDowell has it in his evidence that demands a verdict, pages 168 and 169. Rabbi Rachman, and uh, he is quoting Ra Rabbi Rachman basically quotes ancient tradition that was passed on orally through the. Uh, uh, centuries, uh, it wasn't until after the temple was destroyed that Jews were dispersed where they took their oral spoken teachings and began to transmit them to written form. So that between 70 and 200 AD, you had the written traditions 
of the, the uh, written form of the oral traditions of the rabbis, which predate Christ, sometimes by hundreds of years. But this Rabbi Rocker, this is what he says, when the members of the Sanhedrin found themselves deprived of their right over life and death, occurred in 11 AD, when Jesus was probably about between five and seven years old. The Jewish Messiah was just a little guy walking around uh, Israel and uh, growing up in Nazareth. Uh, but when the Sanhedrin found themselves deprived of their right over life and death, a general consternation took possession of them. They covered their heads with ashes and their bodies with sackcloth, exclaiming, and then he quotes from, from these guys that go way back to the time of Christ, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. There's only one passage that they could have gotten that from. And that's from Genesis 49.10. And they, they, these rabbis at the time of Christ, they interpreted the same way that we Christians interpret it today. The only mistake these rabbis made, you know, they said, Woe unto us, for the scepter has departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not come. The only mistake that they made was they failed to see that this little five to seven year old boy, growing up in Nazareth, the stepson of... Uh, of Joseph, a carpenter, they failed to realize the biological son of Mary was indeed the Jewish Messiah. God's prophecy had not failed. It just, they were not willing to accept the fact that the Messiah was alive and well and on the planet Earth at that particular time. And, uh, uh, but basically, you have the 11 AD, the suppression of judicial power, 70 AD, when where no longer could someone really claim to be from the tribe of Judah, and in between 11 AD and 70 AD, you've got to have the Messiah there for the fulfillment of that passage uh, uh, to be true. So uh, uh, basically, once David became king over Israel, the scepter didn't depart from the tribe of Judah until Messiah came. And uh, uh, But after 70 AD, no way to determine tribal affiliation. And so, this not only tells us that the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah, but we're also told here uh, the time of the Messiah's coming. By the way, there is another passage. We're probably not going to be able to... Well, uh, yeah, I think we'll be able to get to it. We'll probably close with it today in Daniel 9, and then we'll pick up the study next week. Um, but in Daniel chapter 9, we also see the Messiah had to come before 70 A.D. Um, so the tribe of Judah, and for the time, the time of the Messiah's coming. Uh, we don't have time to turn there, but in Isaiah 11.1, 1, the Messiah would also come from the line of Jesse. So you've got Genesis 3.15, he's going to be a man born of woman. Well, guess what, everybody? Every man since, since Adam was born a woman. Adam wasn't born a woman, he was created directly by God. So that's a whole lot of guys. But then we find out, oh, no, he's going to be from Abraham's offspring, the Messiah. Well, there's a whole lot of uh, people from Abraham's offspring. Yeah, well, Esau was rejected. It's got to be from the nation of Israel through, uh, uh, through Israel. 
Then we get it narrowed down to one particular tribe, the tribe of Judah. Now within the tribe of Judah and the millions upon millions of guys from the tribe of Judah, we find out it's the line of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Well, Jesse was a guy who had a few sons and one of his sons' names was... One of, his, one of his sons was named David, a shepherd boy, uh, destined to be the king of Israel. And uh, But the line of Jesse, Isaiah 11 once, now we're narrowing it down. Then we find out in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, and even in Isaiah 9, 7. Take, take a look at Isaiah. Um, So now Jesse has several sons. One of them was a pretty big, pretty muscular guy named Eliab. Uh, God told Samuel, don't annoy him. And Samuel saw him and said, man, this has got to be the next king of Israel to replace uh, Saul. Saul might have been a seven-footer. He was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. So Samuel was a little disappointed that God was rejecting him. But then uh, he looks at Eliab and says, hey, this is a pretty big guy. God says, look, don't be impressed at his height or his stature or his build. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. So God was looking for a man after God's own heart. There was a little shepherd boy named, uh, named David. And uh, um, whatever the case, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, about 700 years before Christ walked the face of the earth, it says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, now there where it says eternal father, it's not the uh, most common word for father, it's the word for father like uh, uh, Soren Kierkegaard is the father of modern existentialism. Well, he's the founder of that school of thought. So it's, it's basically origin, the cause. And so basically, this could be translated uh, the eternal one who is the cause or the creator of all that exists, or the eternal creator. Um, but his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father or Eternal Creator, uh, Origin of all else that exists, Prince of Peace. And then it talks about the Messiah. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You can't sit on the throne of David unless you're from the line of David. And uh, the Lord Jesus, of course, when we look through his genealogies, uh, was through the line of David. By the way, um, one further note, you know, this little boy hey, between ages 5 and 7, Jesus, when he was walking around Nazareth, because he was living in Nazareth right there in, in, the, in Galilee, the Jews from Judea looked down on Galilee, and, they looked, and the Galileans even looked down on those from Nazareth. I mean, it's kind of like uh, when I came out of the West Coast, I found everybody was making jokes, even on TV and all about New Jersey, the state I came from. But in New Jersey, people used to make fun of Newark, where I was born. And uh, so it's kind of like Newark was like the worst city in what was considered the worst, least desirable state. And so it's kind of gotten... And they even... Galileans even had an accent. Peter, uh, when he denied Christ, they recognized him as one of Christ's followers because he was a Galilean. His accent gave him away. Um, so, 
in, in their view, he wasn't really. They just figured, well, you know, like in Thanos, can anything good come out of Galilee? Can, I mean, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They just didn't think he would have qualified. But there was also, a, uh, we have hints of a very vicious, vicious rumor going around about this Jesus of Nazareth. Um, it was common knowledge that Joseph was not his biological father. So even in John 8, when the uh, Jewish religious leaders uh, wanted to slam him, he was saying, you're really not sons of Abraham because you're not believers. You don't believe in me. And so they said, well, look, I'm sorry, but we were not born of fornication. And they were basically implying that Jesus was. And when you see that uh, how Jesus went right for the jugular vein from then on and tore into them with his argumentation right there, uh, you can see that... Uh, he took it very, very personal. In fact, in ancient Jewish writings, uh, based upon their oral traditions, uh, Jesus was referred to uh, as being illegitimate. And uh, there were even Jewish stories where they tried to invent uh, some Gentile as his father, uh, hoping to uh, add insult to injury and that type of thing. Uh, but whatever the case, the Jewish Messiah uh, was in their midst and they missed it. But he would come from the line, from the tribe of Judah, the line of Jesse, the line of David. And then Isaiah 7.14, and we'll close with this, Isaiah 7.14, and uh, we'll pick it up next week. Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, and Emmanuel means God with us. Um, some scholars hold to a double fulfillment in this passage. One of my professors at Liberty University did his doctoral thesis showing that that was only because of uh, pressure from uh, liberal theologians, non-believing theologians, um, and that there really is no reason to hold to a double fulfillment. In other words, there was no guy during this time frame that fulfilled this. The only way uh, that this was fulfilled would be by the Messiah himself. So about 720 years before Jesus walked the earth, it was predicted that the Messiah, whoever he is, he is going to be born of a virgin. And that will be a sign to the nation of Israel and lo and behold, it was common knowledge by Jesus' contemporaries that Joseph was not his biological father. Now, they made up a lot of rumors because of that, um, but it was common knowledge. And I tell you, if a guy claimed to be a Jewish Messiah and openly admitted that his father was his biological father, automatically that would rule him out from being a Jewish Messiah based on Isaiah 7.14 and possibly based on Genesis 3.15 as well. Yes, he would be fully human, but he would not have a human father.